Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Enigma. Well, the world continues to go slightly mad. And we're talking now all the time to leaders about three arenas, really. The changing landscape of our leadership, our leadership in context of the organization that we work and live within, and also our own self-development and personal leadership. Now, a term that you'll hear a lot is high performance. But what does high performance mean? In fact, we are all work in progress and we are all on a journey to high performance. So I need someone, you know what I say, always wiser than me that can help me in some ways unravel that question, what is high performance? You do not want to miss this episode. Come back to me after this because Dan is the head of high performance science and medicine at the LTA. Now, if you're passionate about tennis like I am, you also want to hear that story too. Come back to me just after this. During constant change, your leadership has never been more important to create a better and more inclusive world. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, a podcast for the insatiably curious to explore the power of human-centered leadership to create real momentum for positive and sustainable change. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors as we discover that success leaves clues. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. Hey Dan, it's a big warm welcome from the Leadership Enigma. Thanks very much for taking the time to chat to us. Thanks Adam, great to be here. Now, after that introduction, I'm going to really pass the baton to you, no pun intended, because tell us a little bit about your journey, because I know you've got a, a medical or physical, a physio background uh, before you came into this particular role. So tell us a little bit about your journey before you got to the LTA. Sure. So I guess my journey, <clears throat> I've been involved in sports now for about 20 years or so. Um, I'm a physiotherapist by trade, so I started off, as many people do, working within the NHS um, I was then really fortunate to start working within Premiership Rugby uh, at Northampton Saints for six or seven years yep. through some through some highs and lows. Uh, and, and during that time, obviously, evolved from a, a starting physiotherapist into the lead physiotherapist. Uh, then in 2009, I was approached by England Rugby um, to work as a physiotherapist for the senior team and was hugely fortunate to work for them for, again for seven years or so through some very highs, very big highs and lows. Um, <laughs> And then in 2016, I was approached by the LTA, which is the governing body of um, tennis in the UK, about the role which I'm now in, which is uh, head of performance science and medicine. So I guess my journey in a nutshell has been um, developing skills as a, as a technical expert, as a physiotherapist, uh, working within high performance sport, to now a role which ultimately sees me lead and manage 25, 30 staff across different disciplines within healthcare, doctors, physiotherapists, strength coaches, nutritionists, analysts, psychologists, you name it. It's, you know, that's, that's my role now. Now, that's great. Now, I know we're going to talk about high performance, certainly in the context of the sporting arena, where you spent a lot of your working life, but also we're going to bring that across, aren't we, to leaders and leadership. So if you went into sports, you say you went into the professional rugby arena for England rugby. And as you say, there are extreme highs and extreme lows, aren't there, in, in that kind of environment. What, is that, what impact does that have on just generally people's performance when the highs and lows are so extreme? It's a real roller coaster, And we see that play out on television all the time. But how does that impact on generally on people's attitude to performance 
Oh, I think it's um, it's incredible to be involved in. So I think you know you, you are living and breathing the environment of the athletes and ultimately their performances week on week and month on month. So it's brilliant to be part of. I mean, I was I was really lucky at um, within England rugby to join a, a really established support team of doctors, strength coaches, and, and analysts, etc. Um, and as a result, in, inherently and quite quickly we developed a very strong integrated bond in the way that we we worked together, supported each other through challenges and, you know, successes as well. And you obviously celebrate your successes and you reflect on your, and your losses, don't you? Um, And I think it, it, I guess that was one of the the catalysts to me of wanting to move into a leadership space was ultimately seeing how really high functioning team can operate and can support each other emotionally and professionally during difficult times um, come around, I guess, what we would call performance problems in yeah. terms of supporting our athletes and our teams to to perform at their best. Um, but ultimately, I guess, become more than the sum of our parts. And that's that's always what's really interested me in this kind of space. Now, you just used a phrase that I was about to use. I, I would say great minds think alike. You talked about some of the parts. So when we talk about high performance, and we're talking about high performance now within a sporting context, and perhaps we're still with, with your work within England rugby, there were lots of you who were experts in your field. So you were coming in from the physio perspective. Someone may have come in from a nutrition perspective. Others may have come in from a, a medical perspective as, as the doctor and so many more. So how do the sum of the parts operate in order to create a culture of high performance for the athletes that you're, you're working with? Yes, great question. And I guess if I, if I rewind slightly before I answer that, I guess yeah. when I started in professional rugby, uh, I believe there was two physiotherapists of which I was one and one strength coach. And we, we were the, the sum of the team. And, and, and now, as you say, 15, 20 years on, it's, it's not unrealistic to have 15, you know, potentially different disciplines operating together, hopefully in harmony within that kind of team context or around that individual. Um, so it's not easy. Um, the, the amount of technical expertise you now have in, in different domains, be it nutrition or analysis or psychology, is is really, really significant. But I guess the risk of what comes with that, um, which you can see, is the potential for noise, where if you're working within your own silo and space with expertise, um, you can be adding noise to the system of that player or that team without the context of all the other areas. And I think that... The real skill for me comes in not only the relationship that those people have and how they how they operate around each other, you know, in terms of their own levels of humility and curiosity um, and ability to share and, and be open around what they're trying to achieve. But equally, it's having a really clear idea of what you're trying to do. So I think um, if you take any athlete at any point, there's always a bunch of stuff you can do to make them more psychologically resilient, more robust physically, eat better foods, you know, not stay up all night watching Netflix, whatever it is. Um, I think the reality is it's, it's honing in and lasering in and what's the big ticket things that are going to make the biggest difference to how they perform in their arena. So within rugby, that's on the field of play. Um, it might be, can they tolerate the intensity and volume of training that the coaches need for them to see, for them to practice the patterns of play? On the field, it might be they can sustain that level of work at an international level to beat the All Blacks or to beat South Africa. And I think once you've got a really clear understanding of, at an individual level, what's going to make the difference here to this player, be it a fly half or a scrum half, and you've got a strong understanding of the demands of the sport, you can start to circle wagons around how each of those disciplines can operate 
in an integrated manner to address those big problems. And inevitably, I think working in sport, you, you do have lots of generalists, people who have a broad understanding, not only their area of expertise, but other areas. And there's a lot of diversity of thinking, which is brilliant if it's harnessed in the right way. So I think it, it comes back to me for being having the right personality set of people um, and the environment in which they work, but equally having a really, really clear sense of what's going to make the difference. Now, this is fascinating because I'm changing tack ever so slightly. So many leaders have got to a position within their organisation have relied on their technical ability, their technical competence, perhaps a gifted lawyer in a field, a gifted accountant or an engineer, whatever it might be. And as they move into a position of leadership, there is less reliance on the technical gifts they have and experience, which has served them so well, and perhaps more reliance on something you've mentioned, the human-centered leadership piece. Now their ability to be curious and empathetic and in some ways vulnerable and to be utterly inclusive. And sometimes that's a really hard path for leaders to tread, to, to not rely on something that has stood them in good stead for many decades. And in order to get the benefit of the sum of the parts, focus on the human-centered leadership capabilities. Now, I know you've experienced that too, because you are an expert in your field. But as you say, with so many, maybe 15 or more incredible experts together, it's how do you get that some of the parts together? What are the human-centered capabilities for you that created that high-performance culture? Yeah, so I guess um, I'm going to talk about that in terms of my own journey, um, good and bad, within that leadership space, I guess. But I guess if I, if I rewind to that moment in time, which I'm always going to look at with relatively rose-tinted glasses because it was, it was something that happened previously. Yeah. Um, there, there wasn't necessarily a pinnacle of that group. There wasn't necessarily a um, main main point of contact from a performance support perspective. We had a head coach, and at the time that I left, it was Eddie Jones, yep. um, who ultimately is the performance director of, of that team and that support structure. But in terms of the way that the support operated around that, there wasn't necessarily um, a, a kind of pinnacle at the top of that. It was very much based on the relationships and mutual respect that people had for each other. And also, I guess, the um, the commitment to what you're trying to achieve collectively on the field with that, that group, which is obviously hugely powerful within the team sport. Yeah. So it didn't necessarily need a head of the snake, I don't think, during that period of time. Um, fast forwarding now, I guess, into my current space where I operate as that kind of lead role, I guess I'm, I'm always happy to say that the, these conversations are really cathartic because you start to talk about all the things that you've done wrong, of which <laughs> I've done a huge number. You, we're work in um, progress, aren't we, Dan? That's the thing. I was going to say, I'm by no means a finished article talking to you today, but I guess um, there, is, there are certain characteristics that really help, which you mentioned, around um, being curious, being empathetic, uh, being, I guess, having a good sense of humility within that space as well. But in reality, you are taking off one coat and putting another one on. So when you walk into that space, what gets you perhaps in the door is that you're a technical expert and you've got some credibility and a reputation with which to to walk into a leadership space yeah but quite quickly that means absolutely nothing because how with that small within my case anyway that without that small area of technical expertise all the other domains you are not a technical expert in um and very very quickly you you if you're going to be successful at all you need to demonstrate that you don't have all the answers um, and one of the, I mean, again, we'll go through lots of things I've learned, I'm sure today, but one of the things I've definitely learned is that when it comes to making decisions, 
when I arrived in the role I've, I've, I'm now very fortunate to have, I fell into the trap of always looking to make a decision to be seen as the lead. So very, very, very quickly, you, you need to understand um, and value being being humble and having a healthy dose of humility in that space. And I think one of the traps I fell into early on, which you know I'm happy to talk about, was being a leader in that space made me feel like I needed to be very decisive. So right. I need to be the one who's seen to make those big decisions. Did you feel like you had to solve all the problems as well, Dan? Very much that's your identity that you've given yourself. You know, you're wearing this patch of leader. And as a result, you, you need to be the one that's solving these very complex problems. Um, and what I've learned to my cost, um, but also to my benefit over time, is to not only slow down decision-making, particularly in complex situations of which where I work now, there are many, but also to draw on the expertise I have openly and also not always be the decision-maker. Because when it comes to, I guess, the believability and depth of context that I have compared to the, the group that I ultimately manage, sometimes I'm not best placed to have the, the most credible answer. Yeah. Um, and that, that takes a lot of, it's taken me a lot of reflection, self-development to get to that point, I guess, where I'm comfortable to do that. So, I mean, there's the humility in itself is that, you know, as you say, you're now leading a group of people in a high performance and sometimes I would have thought stressful environment, taking into account the stakes if we're talking about people competing at the highest level now on the tennis court. Um, what have you learned in relation to leveraging that diversity of thought? Because as you said, if you are just the problem solver, then it's all on you and you must come up with the answers. But when you're in a high performance environment with so many experts and so many people who have wisdom, how do you leverage that diversity of thought? Because so many of the challenges that we now have to deal with are very diverse in nature because we're in a world that constantly changes. So how do you now in your role leverage the collective and get that diversity of thought out of that team of 25? Because I assume in sporting, you know, we hear the term marginal gains, don't we? If we're talking about, I don't know, what turns someone into 50th in the world as a tennis player into nine in the world as a tennis player, maybe it's very modest, the change that needs to take place for them to shoot up the rankings. I think we probably all saw, didn't we, with Emma Raducanu, who, who, what she did from, I think she was ranked 150 and then won the US Open. Something shifted, something changed. But how do you leverage that, that diversity of thought of your team to create those gains and performance wins in the athletes now that you work with? Sure. So I guess um, a number of things I need to say to that. I guess ultimately the, the remit of my team within performance support, which is ultimately sports science and medicine, yeah. is to operate to a certain degree all the way down the pathways, as, as we kind of chatted to before we started, all the way up with, with some light touch at the elite end. So we operated across quite a diverse range of demographics, yeah. age-wise, gender-wise, performance-wise. Um, let's just give let's the, just, with that let's just give people an overview of that Dan whilst you're talking about it because I, I love the fact that you're actually working with with uh, the young kids who are coming through as well so just help the listeners understand what are the various groups that you actually now are assisting from a performance point sure. of view so I guess if we think about the um the, the pathway in the British system now yeah uh, the pathway starts very young I mean you know tennis is, is an is an early adoption sport there's no doubt about that um and, and I guess from an LTA perspective, we have some, we provide some level of support, oversight, education, and guidance from as early as 10 years of age, all the way through, as you'll have seen, to more established players playing in our elite competitions like Davis Cup or yeah. Billie Jean King Cup and yeah. some of our established players. 
Um, I guess what support we provide evolves gradually and changes quite significantly. So it's a, it's a much younger end of the pathway. It's about exploring the sport ultimately. It's about building foundations. It's about making sure that that end of the pathway has the right education resources and support for its system yes. to allow its players to flourish. As those players get older and older and they kind of transition into this emerging professional space, it, our support intensifies inevitably in terms of making sure that they are at an individual level as robust as they can be, as physically strong as they can be, to support their tennis aspirations. Yeah, it's not just about um, the tennis, is it, Dave? No, it's, it's definitely not. I mean, I guess when we think about the, the rigours of being a professional tennis player, playing week on week globally, um, and oftentimes, you know, particularly when you're an emerging player, you're, you're travelling often with yourself or just with a coach. Yeah. It's very, it can be a very challenging um, environment to be in. So I think when we think about the well-being development of young people, when we think about their physical robustness to be able to tolerate playing 30 weeks on tour, traveling with high frequency, playing two to three matches a week, every week, yeah. um, you pay quite a physical cost. So they need to be ready for it. So there's a lot of work that goes into that. Uh, but I guess it, as you get into that space, we start to intensivize how we work. We've become more specific, as I mentioned earlier in the rugby space, around what, what's going to make the biggest difference to this player. Yeah. Um, and obviously, inevitably, the quality of the coaches that they have and the coaching that we provide through the LTA is, is very, very high. And that will always be the, the most important thing. But then our, our role, is, as it describes, is to support that performance and look at how building greatest areas of strength, power, movement, psychological resilience can supplement and enhance their ability to play tennis better. So, um, so yeah, it kind of, in, it kind of intensifies up in that scholarship or emerging professional stage. Yes. And that's where I guess we're, we have more individual contacts with our players. So there's a holistic approach, isn't there really? Because as you say, we come back to the sum of the parts being gifted on the tennis court or the rugby field or the football pitch or whatever it might be. Yes. is absolutely necessary to have that innate capability, but then there's this incredibly solid foundation that's required, which in some ways you're having to look after more of a holistic approach to the abilities of the athlete to compete and actually be well in themselves. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I must say um, my, my experiences in rugby, which again was a different, um, a different system, different environment, different world really compared to tennis. Um, the, back in the day, and I'm now talking back six years or so, yeah. the kind of, the, the, the well-being management um, attributed to English rugby or England rugby players at that point was emergent at best. There wasn't there wasn't necessarily a focus around how we were safeguarding their well-being as, as much as there is now because it's much more in public consciousness. There's a yeah. much greater awareness of how it can not only make for better players but also better people. Um, and I think it's it's something in my time at the LTA that has only grown and grown. And it definitely acts now, I think, as a pillar of how we develop young people and how we support people that are working with them to understand them best and to help them to develop at you know, the right rate. I mean, the fact that you're working with young adults, as you say, within the LTA in some ways enhances uh, that level of importance. Has there been a difference for you, it's just popped into my mind, Dan, has there been a difference for you working with uh, England rugby in a team environment where you've got a squad to maybe working within the LTA where you've got a lot of individually brilliant players who are seeking to be the next best tennis player maybe in the world but that's a really lonely battle it, it is and it, they are completely different worlds and again yeah. another another trap i fell into was almost trying to 
blueprint, my experiences from rugby and what was successful and how, how what good looks like in terms of performance support context yeah. and lift that and put that into tennis. And they're, and they're very different. They're very, very different animals. Um, I think there's, there are some positives and negatives to both. So I think if you think about a rugby context, although you're in front of 100,000 people and you know on TV in front of a few million, you're there with 15 of, of you know, ultimately your best friends. Yeah. Trying, trying to work collectively to, to win a match. And there's quite a lot of solidarity on field that comes with that. If you, if you transpose that into a tennis environment, you walk out onto court completely on your own, again, observed by millions, scrutinized by them as well. Yeah. Um, and, and the amount of, I guess, self-resilience and assuredness that you have to have is, is pretty significant, particularly when it's a sport that no matter how good you are, you're going to lose more than you win. Um, and your ability to kind of contextualize that and remain confident and on course. It, it takes a, it takes a lot of kind of, I guess, self-reliance. Now, I'm fascinated by this area, so I'm, I'm going to stop and we're going to pause if we can. Um, you, you know, I'm passionate about tennis. Uh, I, I ache even after one match now. But talk to me a little bit about mindset, because there's something about what's the mindset of a squad of 15, as you say, on a pitch in front of 100,000 and millions of people in their ability to overcome stay resilient rise to the challenge and then one person as you say maybe on a center court again in front of millions and no one to help them no coach allowed to go anywhere near them and the feeling of isolation tell me a little bit of what you've learned from a mindset perspective working in those two very disparate camps yeah, I guess um, I, I don't want to undersell the rugby because I guess the stakes are very high and, and those those guys are under an enormous amount of pressure um, and they and they cope with that extremely well. Um, but I guess, like you say, that there is something to say for, in a gladiatorial sense, yeah. um, ultimately stepping out on your own against an opponent who wants to beat you um, in front of lots of people with very little support structure around you. Um, and I guess... Um, Ultimately, as not a psychologist, my, my technical kind of understanding of this space is going to be limited. But what I would say is that from my observations, um, when you see a player playing tennis between points, between games, yeah. in rest period, they are looking to their support in the crowd and they are drawing energy from it. Uh, and whether that's the coach giving them the kind of positive look or the, the S&C coach doing the same or the, the cluster of their friends that have come to see them, you know, they, they draw a huge amount of confidence and energy from that in the good moments and the bad moments. We, wanna, we, have a, um, we also have a team composition called the Davis Cup, which is a kind of a, yeah. a British representative team, men's team, and same in the women's team as well. And, and the role that the captain plays in sitting, I guess, next to the referee, watching every point, living every moment, giving that player feedback, you can see the value that the player gets from having that human contact. Well, they can they can be coached, can't they? During uh, in in between games, can't they? Or there there is that human proximity, whereas that's not allowed on the tour. No, not not currently allowed on the tour. And I guess it, 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 whether it's the technical coaching or whether it's just the human element of someone being in it with you. Yeah, I do think it adds, it adds it makes a difference. Um, and I guess that's something that I've definitely observed. Um, which which helps, but it's it's bloody lonely, yeah, no doubt. No, I, it, it's it's brutal. You know, I've kind of grown up around tennis most of my life, and I know anyone who's who's gone and tried to make it somewhere somehow on the tour has said it's incredibly lonely, uh, and the mindset, the mental resilience needed when you say you're on that one-on-one -on -one gladiatorial battle, and there are many sports, aren't there, that that have this, is extraordinary. 
has to be extraordinary, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Let me just transpose some of this now into into a leadership environment. So what are some of the kind of the big lessons that you carry with you now as a leader working in a high-performing environment? Um, I know you've mentioned a few, but what are those kind of front-of-mind lessons that you've learned and you carry with you all the time now uh, with the experiences that you've had? Sure. So I guess we, yeah, we talked about a couple. I guess I'm going to talk about some of the mistakes wound into those learnings sure. as well. So I guess... Um, one of the mistakes that I definitely made, and I've talked about this quite widely, is that I came into the sport from rugby with a preconceived notion of what high performance looked like. Right. Um, and I guess I, at the time, inherited a team who, with, without a clear strategy, so at an organisational level within performance, we didn't really have a clear strategy when I joined the LT, and that's something that we had to work very hard at. Yeah. And within with the team I inherited, there were some people that had been there for 10-plus years. There were some people who hadn't been there very long. Um, they hadn't really had clear leadership or structure um, or a direction of travel. So they were kind of rudderless, I guess, through no fault of their own. Um, and one of the mistakes I made, I guess, was to do what everyone does, which is to go in and observe and look at kind of where you feel you can add value and start to put, the, I guess, the, the framework of a strategy together. Um, but in playing that back to my team, one of the mistakes I made, and maybe more than once, is, is I moved too quick. So I moved from where we were to where I wanted us to be. Right. Um, I didn't necessarily have everyone on board and on the bus in the way they needed to be or, or engaged with the level that I should have done. So it became my plan rather than our plan. Okay. Um, and again, when you're trying to get early buy-in as a leader, particularly when you are evolving and developing strategy, unless you've got that collective pull together, um, you're running into trouble straight away. Um, um, I guess I had to go through quite a large change management process joining the organization as well in terms of looking at skill sets that people we had, the structure, the org chart that we had, and, and looking to evolve that so it would deliver against our kind of key deliverables. Um, and I think that in some regards, I needed to go through that first before then going too far down through the road of, of strategy. So that's that's something that I learned. Um, and, and I think, as I say, that my, my performance director at the time was a guy called Simon Timpson, um, who now works for Manchester City. Really great guy. We yeah. came on board really together. And one of the things he always said to me was, obviously, you can move at speed, but if you look behind you and there's no one with you, you're not going anywhere. Yeah, um, true. I think understanding pace of change um, and understanding making sure that the right stakeholders from an influencing perspective, both within my own ecosystem, but across the organization, making sure they're all with you is, is crucial. Otherwise you're just paddling against the tide constantly. Um, and that's, that's, so I've, I've had to drastically reduce or change the pace at which I want to introduce change. Um, and that's a lesson I've learned, but if you do that really well, you can actually move more quickly because as I say, you're making, more small steps together. Gotcha. Dan, I want to actually link this to the podcast that is released just before you where I chatted to uh, uh, Peter Searcy, who's been a people leader for uh, years now at the FBI. Um, and he talks about the difficulty in leading change where you have many type A personalities. You can imagine some of the personalities within law enforcement. Uh, let me kind of transpose that onto the environment of let's just take England rugby you must have lots of type A personalities and lots of people who are incredibly good at what they do. And I don't just mean the people on the field. So how how, or what have you learned in relation to, you talk about bringing people with you, how do you influence and get those types of personalities on board with you so they are 
in the rearview mirror when you look behind you and not somewhere over the horizon? Yeah, and if, if I if I knew that answer really well, then um, I'd be doing a lot better than I am. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> yeah. We'd both be writing a book. Yeah, we would. Yeah, we would. Uh, I guess the way that I'd answer that is ultimately um, what what I've learned is that to to have influence, you have to get in sync. So when you, whoever you, whether it's a direct report that you're ultimately leading and managing, to a peer that works cross functionally yeah. in a different department but is directly involved in your space. You know, you you have to take the time to build a personal relationship and get in sync and understand the world through their eyes, because inevitably we all have, as we as we all know, our own perception of reality and what, in high performance terms, this is high performance to me. This is what it looks like and feels like, and this is what I want to create. But that doesn't necessarily one transpose into the environment you're now in, or two reflect the I guess the experiences and perspectives of the other people that you have and. I think there's again something I've learned as well is that you, you know, you have to have that genuine curiosity and respect to get under the hood of what other people are seeing. Um, and I think within that, again, it sounds wishy-washy, but taking that time to build those relationships, understanding their perspectives, you can quite quickly arrive at what the outcomes you both share. So, what's the outcome we both share in this in this example that would take us on to the next step? And as a result. Um, let's focus on that rather than on the differences we have around our experiences or, or what, you know, how how we're going to arrive at that destination. So I think that's that's worked for me. Right. Um, I guess I'm really I'm really lucky that the, the team I directly lead, which are kind of the leadership group of lead physiotherapists, you know, lead doctor, lead SNC, et cetera. You know, they're they're all very established technical experts. There's a real blend of type A but non-type A personalities yeah. that I've managed to recruit. And therefore, there's there's a real there's a really good blend. There's there's some awkward conversations with people who are quite similar in personality to me that you've got to understand that that's why it's awkward. And there are some that are far more palatable. And um, I think it's for me, it does come back to yeah, re- relationship, human centered leadership, but just generally as a person, yeah. um, and trying to arrive at a collective agreed goal that you're going to focus your efforts on. You know, Dan, you have wonderfully brought us, I think, full circle back to uh, human-centred, that, that element of, of high performance. Let me ask you a question, which, which I don't know whether you could answer or not. Just I'd love your thoughts. Take into account the role that you have in the environment within which you work. How much time do you think you spend being the technical expert with all of your background and training? And how much time do you think you spend just being the people leader, the human-centred leader, where you're simply listening? connecting, empathizing, being inclusive. How much time do you think you spend in those two camps? I think when I started in role, uh, predominantly because of, um, partly because of what was needed for the role, but also because of my background as a technical expert, I would have said it was 70% technical leadership and quite directive, maybe even 80, uh, and 20% kind of human-centered. Yeah. if, if I transpose that now to six years into my role, where as I say, I've got an established leadership group, I've got a more established team and a, and a coherent strategy. I would say I'm now probably 70% of my time is more in a human centered, non-directive yeah. space of leadership, uh, which is, you know, sometimes highly uncomfortable for me to be in and very unfamiliar. Um, and 30% in the more, in the more technical problem solving specific space. Uh, and, and again, along that way, I've been I've burned myself. So being um, 
being a good physiotherapist with a background in sport, I've been drawn into areas of technical leadership or even delivery within my group right. that has undermined and undervalued the people that I have doing that job because I'm the leader kind of dropping, parachuting into this kind of space, which I don't think ultimately leads to very good outcomes, either at a player level or at a, or at a kind of team dynamic level. Yeah. So I've, I've had to learn, I've had to learn that. Um, and as I said earlier on in the piece, there is a thing about taking off the coat of being a technical expert and you are now something completely different uh, and having to evolve accordingly. And having to have the courage to do that as well, because that means people leaving behind them maybe the very thing that's allowed them to be successful. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it is, and I'm not saying it's comfortable for me now because it's <laughs> not. I still, obviously, every month you get all the journals that you could be reading from a technical perspective. And I'm always second guessing myself, should I be getting back up to date with this? And um, and at the moment, I'm managing to fight that urge, but it's hard. It's yeah. really hard. No, it is hard. Listen, Dan, how can people get in contact with you if they want to continue the conversation, learn a bit more from you? So how's how can they do that? Uh, so yeah, really open to that. We would love to chat. So I guess um, best ways of getting hold of me, um, uh, at Dan Lewenden from a Twitter perspective. Yep. Uh, Dan Lewenden at me.com from an email perspective. Uh, but yeah, always, always open to have these sorts of conversations and learn a bit. That's great. And I think you're on LinkedIn as well, aren't you? Yes, thank you, pardon. Yeah, that too. No, it's great because I know a lot of listeners actually use that as a primary platform. Uh, listen, final question, Dan. Is there a, a piece of leadership advice that you you feel is the best piece of advice you've ever given or received? Now, I know that's context-based, but is there something that's front of mind for you that, that you'd like to share? Gosh, there's, 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 there's a few. I mean, I guess for, for me specifically, um, it would be something on the lines of take your time. Don't, don't expect to have the answers because you don't need to have the answers. Be curious. You know, and I think that's, that's, that's my kind of start of the tent. No, I love that. And in a world that constantly changes, let's all be insatiably curious. I, I think that's great advice. Listen, Dan, you've been an absolute star. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Leadership Enigma. I hope you have enjoyed it too. But it's been great. Thank you very much. Take care. Join us again next week for more tips and strategies on the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or our YouTube channel. And remember to get your daily learning to build success at www.insights.emeritus.org. Download the Insights app and start learning for free. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.